Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Alex Talcott, who is a real estate and venture capital attorney, educator, and investor. He's the CEO of New Constellation Capital and professor of, at the University of New Hampshire. And I met Alex in uh, Charlotte um, a couple, couple months ago at a conference, and I noticed that he had a really cool shirt on. And now, if you're watching the video, he also has another cool shirt. So I want to start with Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your love of cool shirts? Who are you wearing? Yes. So I'm like you. Like I'm an outgoing, extroverted guy, but I can only initiate so many conversations. So I actually really like wearing branded apparel to give somebody at a conference kind of some low-hanging fruit if we happen to have a common <laughs> interest. So uh, you remember that I was wearing a Blue Note Jazz Club t-shirt, and so we got to connect over jazz. You know, I understand that the name of the show is a reference to Miles Davis, and you and I were talking little Miles and a little John Coltrane before we talk. So we got that jazz connection. Um, I'm wearing this. Um, welcome to Queens. I was born in Queens, New York. It's a reference to my favorite movie, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. But also my next out-of-state business trip is to New York City. So I always keep motivated if I'm thinking about what my next big adventure is. So I'm speaking with you today from New Hampshire, where I live. And uh, January 9th is in New York City is next. So I'm already manifesting some success and some fun. Awesome. And yeah, I'll be in New York in a couple of weeks as well. So um, good, good place to travel. But uh, in classic real estate milestones fashion, I'd like to start with what's your first milestone in real estate? My first milestone in real estate, I will take to third grade. So um, we had a class guest who was our state assemblyman. So it was in the lower house of our state legislature. Um, Long Island, New York, came into our class and explained this local pond that was cleaned up with some state funds. And he showed us the bill that he sponsored in the legislature to have that pond cleaned up. So for me, as somebody who was already interested at a young age in writing and what I could maybe do with writing, the idea that I saw a piece of paper that had some effect on the real world on land was a big moment for me. I got that assemblyman's autograph. I still have it. I think I was the only one who asked for his autograph, you know, <laughs> or maybe other people would be more like athletes or musicians, but there was something about the power that that person wielded or knew how to operate some system to make something happen in the real world. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I've always been interested in property and law ever since. Okay, so that's really cool because this combines a lot of the interests that I know you have, in in including, um, I guess, real estate, law, and you got politics in there too. So it's a cool moment where it encapsulates everything. But do you think it started there or, you know, something in your past or something about you is... Uh, I mean, you know, I can go back to some things. former life or something, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. But uh, no, I mean, I, I, do in, I do tie a lot of it to then, I think there's some other people who will ask me sometimes, oh, how long have you been a lawyer? And I guess the answer to that question is something like approximately 15 years. But at some point, if you gained a lot of insights and a lot of experiences, 
while you're in law school, during college, during other on the side experiences in your life. Um, I don't know that the clock has to stop or start rather like when you had your first nine to five job or something. So for me, when it comes to property, when it comes to real estate, when it comes to anything that I, I invest in and invest broadly defined, like invest my time, my talents and my treasure. Um, I like to take that ba back as far as I can, because if I do stretch it, it's not stretching how much, you know, how many years of experience I have. I'm not trying to get hired for a job. Um, God forbid I ever have to again. Uh, but the farther back that you can trace what you've done that's relevant to what you can do, that's only a good thing for any people you collaborate with. Yeah, and that's that's funny because I'd say I have a similar story in, in that sense that my um both of my parents are lawyers and they'd probably say I've been a lawyer since I was in kindergarten when I just I wouldn't let them punish me without explaining thoroughly the reason why. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm innocent. <laughs> and um, and then I guess, yeah, when I was 10 years old, we'd walk around D.C. and my mom would point to deals and say, you know, that was that's my deal. And I was like, wow, my mom builds buildings. Little did I know that she was a lawyer, but kind of had it in my head from there. So that's uh, it's awesome that, you know, it doesn't make sense when you start looking back and realizing how much of you is, is from your childhood. Yeah, you don't want to think back to your first like college homework assignment as being the start of your professional career. That's pretty weak. Yeah, no, definitely. It's um a little bit less um yeah, it's not as as powerful or it's you know, it's a little more arbitrary. But um in terms of college, you you teach at a college. I'm curious um what led you to becoming a professor? So I taught my first college class at 29 at a small college of about a thousand students outside of Boston. I taught global issues and global economics. Um since then, the course that I've taught the most, the one that's my bread and butter, is undergraduate business law. Um, I've also taught introduction to financial management. I've taught a variety of different classes. Um, I like teaching business law um, and finance with as much leeway as I can to teach rip from the headlines. So you mentioned I'm interested in, in politics and, and certainly local politics. They're wonderful sticky examples of the way the world works to the extent that it does all around us. So I love using current and local examples to make points about business opportunities and laws and the way that businesses and laws can be changed. So uh, a lot of continuity in terms of stuff that I've been interested in learning that I'm interested in teaching. And the best classes are the classes where I'm thinking out loud, the seminar style classes. So I led the first fintech seminar at the MBA level at the University of New Hampshire. So really, really small class, which felt like maybe more of a directed learning or a lab where we were in it studying in real time a lot of the changes that are happening in financial technology. So I love teaching classes that are at the cutting edge or even taking pretty stock curriculum and making it as current as possible. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to ask you about some fintech and some changes going on with what's going on right now. But um, I want to get a little more into what you what you like to teach as a professor. Um, I mean, I loved I loved business law. I thought most of my friends thought it was a, a boring, really difficult class. Well, you probably had a good professor. Business did, law tends to be a cult of personality. It tends to be a love-hate relationship with whoever is leading you in the learning experience. It can be 
really painful if you don't hit it off with your teacher. Did you like your teacher? I really liked her. A lot of people didn't like her because she was strict, but I liked her. Oh, I loved strict teachers in college. They were awesome. I don't, you know, I'm not paying for compliments. I want to know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and maybe to get some help where there's potential. So good for you. Absolutely. So um, what is, I guess, the most important lesson you teach in in business law? I'm curious what you you think is the point of emphasis in in that class. Yeah. um, Maybe real estate specifically as well, if you want to tie it in. Yeah. um, it's, It's that the worst word that you can cling to as a learner who wants to function in society is they. There is no they. You are they, or I see you have the Beatles behind you. So maybe I should say some variation as I am he and you are me and we are all together. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. like, like there is no, like, there is no they. Like, yes, there are certain power structures, um, but many of them are made by man and can be overcome by man. So um, I don't like it when people relinquish the ability to make a project, make a company, make a change on the basis of some... Um, ineffable they a lot of times the they you can unpack who are the who's or or what are the steps that might be in my way to go through melodic methodically or what opportunities are there to disrupt or bypass that traditional route appropriately with as little risk and consequence as possible so um i like to get real with my students about knowing our who, what, when, where, why, hows about what we're studying. Hmm. Okay. So I guess I want to unpack that a little bit more. Do you feel that, I guess the U S as a whole, or, um, you know, some section of the U S is, uh, would you say that in terms of our, our structure as a democracy, how, how much do you think that, you know, we truly are a democracy versus, yeah. You know, it's a fair question. People. Do we yeah. take our democracy for granted? And what are the metrics by which we measure that? Is it uh, voter participation? You know, what is it exactly? One that I can communicate to you from here in New England, where our democratic structure of the New England town meeting, where the town comes together, huddled in a room and decides school budget and things like there's a lot of that that is alive and well structurally where I live, but how vibrant it is requires people to show up. So it is the case that even in the places that have the most quaint um, settings and the uh, best reputations for idyllic democracy, it is not the case that every zoning board meeting will have a quorum or has as many members and alternates as it's entitled to. So yeah, it all depends on on us as an educated and active uh, participants in our democracy to keep it alive. So the founders were Aces on that. John Adams was all over that one. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the founding fathers had a, had a great vision. I really like that um, I, idea of you know coming in and joining the town hall. I feel like that's the that's the quintessential idea that we, we're trying to achieve. But how do we achieve that on a national scale? I feel like you know you can't have you know three hundred million people come into Congress and voice their opinion. yeah direct yeah direct democracy is difficult. Ranked choice voting takes a long time with current technology and familiarity to uh, to process. So um, to the extent that the states are often described as laboratories of democracy and places like New Hampshire and Massachusetts have a lot of different towns, a lot of different municipalities to try things out and there are inefficiencies there. Um, the best thing is to not just have a one size fits all top down approach. 
I'm very pleased with a lot of experimentation that's happening with governance and property ownership that's happening in Web3. So that's a major emphasis of mine. So um, since I last saw you in person, um, I've had some real estate acquisitions and some real estate transactions, but um, acquisitions are certainly on the back burner because of interest rates being as high as, as there are. So I'm investing in a lot of property potential in the metaverse. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What's your thesis? Because there's a lot of skepticism around the metaverse. Um, I think it's an interesting concept, but I, I don't want to spend all my time in the metaverse. Is that a relevant criticism? What, what, yeah, what absolutely. The same way. It's okay. You know, um, the older I get, the more honest people get about their guilty pleasures. And I am still surprised sometimes when people let me know that they're into D&D, &D, they're into Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, there's some people who have some like geeky interests and in, in whatever, as long as you're not spending all your time in your mom's basement, like, yeah, you can have a healthy, wonderful, productive social life and life life. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. What, what do you like about the metaverse? Why, why do you think it's uh, worthy of your investment capital? Yeah, it's where, um, it's where I see a lot of the cheapest, best capital at the moment. So cost of capital is very high in terms of borrowing from banks and whatnot to acquire stuff and then, you know, forget it with inflation about actually in, in labor participation in terms of actually making improvements with said land. Um, so I took a look at um, less capital intensive projects and um, Twitter spaces are, are fascinating places where smart people are thinking out loud and forging relationships. And um, social media feels more social than at any time in my life since the AOL chat room and, and now surpassing that. Um, I had the great pleasure of meeting the former CEO of AOL at a political conference last month. And I let him know that. I was like, there was this huge drop off in social media being social after you know, AOL wasn't as popular. Um, but now all of a sudden we have, we have people at varying levels of docs knowing one another and sharing ideas. And uh, sometimes those ideas become next level conversations. Sometimes they become projects. Sometimes they become companies. Sometimes they're part of movements. And so I'm finding at very, very low cost, um, I can network. And that's been really exciting for me. It has stretched my days. I've, I've been trying to go to bed a little bit earlier. I have a I have a family that's pretty early to rise here on the East Coast. Um, it's challenging because I've been rediscovering a lot of the talent that's out there on the West Coast. I have a lot of new friends in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And, you know, talking with them at what might be bedtime for me is when, you know, they're just finishing dinner. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I was I think I like the um East Coast time because I, I still I still go to bed pretty late and, and wake up pretty late. I mean if you're a sports <laughs> fan, um the West Coast is pretty great. So like when I'm in Las Vegas, if you can like wake up in the morning and college football is already on on a Saturday, I mean that is pretty great. Yeah, I like central time. We get noon football, you know, roll out of bed, start watching Sunday football. <laughs> I do have somebody on my team um who was hired this past year in the Philippines, which is fantastic because our days are entirely different. And so I feel like a greater continuity in my business and my business communication, knowing that, you know, when I go to sleep, Rose getting started.
yeah that's pretty cool yeah Yeah, so um in terms of changes in the economy in real estate in in fintech you know what are some of these key changes that you're focused on that you think is the the next maybe investable trend or just the macro trend that's affecting you know our, our daily lives so um looking at real numbers and not just assuming that with higher interest rates well that means that people um the the price points of properties have to come down to adjust for that because people aren't getting substantial raises at work certainly not beating cpi so um just looking at the actual numbers where you might assume like oh well you know it's probably a wash you know prices will just come come down on properties because the amount that people can pay um is probably fairly fixed. That is not the case. Prices have not come down sufficiently to warrant buys. Um, I think it's it's a real tough time, especially if you're relying on the news of old podcasts. I mean, a lot of those things that might have been taken for granted because they've been the status quo for some time, you got to revisit it. You still got to check the numbers. You still got to check the situation or have a, a team that is well-suited to have certain people stay on top of Okay, what is changing and what is not changing? So I think real estate acquisitions are very, very difficult right now. Um, the only traditional apartment buy that has come across my desk in months that I like um, is a company that I serve on the board of directors of. And that company, we have a um, an acquisition in Houston where we have an assumed 2.5% interest rate because mm-hmm. it's a HUD loan. So mm. that's just that's just a horse of a different color in terms of yeah. a deal like that. But other than that, the kinds of property that I'm looking at right now are of the digital type, are of the ones where there's a physical aspect and there's a digital aspect. Um, my attention is now 70 to 85% on Web3 projects, but 5 to 10% of the Web3 projects do have an overlap with real property or other kinds of property. So for example, the most recent property interest that I bought into is a fidgetal proposition that involves attractive land in Wyoming. And my buy-in to that land was by purchasing an NFT. Projects like that um, are really intriguing to me. And so those are the kinds of real estate related projects that I'm apt to be engaged in 2023. Awesome. So I find NFTs and the link to the real world, especially within real estate, to be one of the most compelling uses for various reasons. There's one glaring problem that I have that um, I want to see if we can overcome or see how you think about it. Because my biggest issue is the fact that we have this digital NFT, which has a has a you know immutable ledger, you know chain of of history that you know can't be faked, but how do you connect that to the real world with, you know, this whole, this whole idea of trustlessness and decentralization, but I don't see a way of connecting an NFT to the real world, to real property interest without having some sort of trust in a entity yeah. and definitely not decentralized completely. Absolutely. So somebody who's as um, educated and inquisitive as yourself you are probably a very trusted person in terms of navigating investment opportunities in the future for your trust network of friends. Um, I feel like I'm similarly suited. That's something that I've been 
preying on, you know, for years and reflecting on um, the kind of leadership that sometimes feels thrust upon people like you and me. So what that means is you're right. It's not cost effective to have those people who are untrusting of investment opportunities to some kick the tires in some way. Like it doesn't make sense for them to hop on planes and book hotel rooms to check out like everything that is out there or that they would even know what they're looking for. But I have discovered that my people want me to do that at least on their behalf. So in the example of this Wyoming, Wyoming property, um, you know, that's a pretty good time for me to get the old uh, selfie stick out and to take a tour of the land and be like, I'm here. And so, you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's, there are all different indicia of trust in ways that you can demonstrate the reality of your propositions. Yeah, absolutely. But from a legal aspect, how do we ensure that the interest that you're buying in an NFT is truly an interest in the land? And from your, from your, uh, it doesn't have to be. Sure. It doesn't have to be. That's a great question. So, um, I think the idea of recorded title to real property is but one aspect of ownership. I had a conversation about this yesterday with one of the best IP attorneys in Chicago, who happens to be a dear friend of mine from law school. He also teaches at the University of Illinois Law School. And the first thing that you start a conversation in property law and law school about is the notion of thinking about property as a bundle of sticks. So you can own different aspects of a house. You can have title to it. You can have a mortgage to it. There's what you can do and what you can restrain others from doing. So if the bank has an interest and the bank does have an interest on my home, I can't have a bank teller show up at my house and say, we have an ownership interest in your house. Set up the cot. I'm sleeping over. Like they mm -hmm. can't do that. Right. So we have this sense that like when you own stuff, even if you don't, it, don't own it fully and what the heck does owning something fully even mean? That's almost metaphysical. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of things to value that you can own, like your right to do stuff. And what I find with your generation, and you're a Gen Zer, I'm an old Gen Yer, um, is you're so experiential. It's one of the things that's really exciting about the future that uh, the boomers don't understand about you is that you are not going to be spending all your time on your phones in the metaverse. You love going to live concerts. You know, when you can't buy tickets to a Taylor Swift concert, you get really, really mad. <laughs> so there are going to be all different ways to experience and use property of different sorts with the proliferation of smart contracts that are ever smarter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, smart contracts are are really interesting. Um, and I think that that's one of the most exciting pieces of technology, just given, you know, the, I guess there's a way to keep it in the digital world to actually have some trustlessness there. I mean, you always want to have some, some trust in the system um, that, you know, you're actually, I mean, if you don't know how to analyze the code yourself, you need to have trust in someone is what I mean. Yeah. So, but, so there, there are different things, right? So if I go to that land that I referenced in Wyoming and I'm not arrested for trespassing, um, that is one little piece of evidence that what I experienced was legit and my arrangement is legit. Right. Um, but with token gating to get into events, that's another data point from a user experience standpoint, where if the NFT that you own is your uh, ticketed admission 
to a fish reunion show and you got into the show, you weren't kicked to the curb, your trust level in that technology goes way up. The history of fintech has been um, how trust is built and a lot of it comes down to experience. So ATM machines are a great example. ATM machines came around a little bit before I was born. And for my parents, they needed some level of trust that if they were making a cash deposit, that this unfamiliar machine was not a paper shredder, that the cash was actually gonna be recorded in some fashion. And the story of how that happened involves laws, insurance industry, and just straight up word of mouth among friends that, oh yeah, that thing works, it's not that bad. And speaking of, we uh, we thought that FTX worked for a while, but um, turns out we did? it didn't work. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what we thought, but I don't know if there's a we. There's definitely not a they. There's a <laughs> we the people. I am fortunate to have not been among the we of FTX. And FTX was, uh, frankly, good for what I do, um, not only in terms of like reinstilling the familiarity of like person to person trust and proceeding with with businesses, but I have a conference that I've been working on preparing for some time. And I think that the FTS X debacle is going to help drive attendance. So I'm co-hosting a conference called Crypto Regs in uh, April, April 26th to 28th in Atlanta. So Crypto Regs, Crypto Regulation. Um, we are encouraging founders who want to be prepared to um, shape regulations to abide by, to shape regulations. So we have the founder community, we have lawyers and accountants coming, we're gonna have regulators come, and that's gonna be some real serious business. And I expect some serious attendance at my conference because of FTX making you know, front page news, not just business section news, obviously. Um, now, for those people who think that crypto regs is really dry in a space <laughs> that is really exciting, um, don't worry, we're having an after, part, an after party that is uh, partly branded crypto action. So for the action takers or the more creative creators, crypto regs during the day, crypto action at night. So just knowing who you are, I can't imagine it being boring as much as you think crypto <laughs> regs is dry. So uh, anyone who's considering going, I would not worry about it being too dry. Yes, yes. We have, uh, <laughs> we have multiple DJs um, competing for our business. So awesome. yes. Sweet. That's great. So, but I still, I want to unpack this, um, Sam Bakeman fried FTX situation a little bit, just given that you have some expertise that not everyone or most people don't have. So I, I want to hear, um, kind of, I mean, just more about your perspective on, you know, what transpired and why that was, um, okay or not. Okay. You know, what, where's the fine line was, it, did, was there a fine line or was it pure fraud? Um, and, you know, yep. what do you think are the implications politically? Because I just think it's really fascinating that um, Sam Baker-Fried was one of the largest, if not the largest donor to the Democratic Party. And now it feels like there's a lot of, uh, you oh. know, you know, a lot of cynicism to be had here. Well, you have curly hair too. So maybe you're also, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. So I, I always say in, in politics and in government, the two things that um, political pundits and elected politicians do best are underreact and overreact. Um, so I will comment actually on an overreaction aspect of it because there are enough people who are you know wagging their fingers and I am not excusing the guy at all. But just to be a little bit different, um, here's, here's a point on overreaction that I've observed. During the hearing, during the congressional hearing that he was unable to attend because he was apprehended in 
Bahamas the day before, um, there was this, this outrage that was iterated and reiterated by a member of Congress on the dais um, when she heard that, um, not TurboTax, QuickBooks, that, that, the, that the accounting of the company was done on QuickBooks. And there's this exchange, QuickBooks? QuickBooks, like, oh, QuickBooks is not good enough. And if you look at some of the, the comments on, on Twitter, you have different CPAs who are saying, oh, it's, it's not really the software, it's how it was used. And some people say, no, the, soft, the software is insufficient because it doesn't have this feature or that feature. By that time you get to this level of sophistication of a company or the sheer size and volume of a company, it should be this and this. But I think that shows that because there's not a resounding QuickBooks is not good enough, and that must have been a heck of a day for their corporate communications people when their <laughs> when their Google News alerts were firing up that there's some like insufficient company. Um, I, I think what that raises is that like a lot of companies and a lot of organizations, um, especially when they grow hyper fast, um, can be overwhelmed. And there aren't a lot of safe harbors that we have in crypto, in fintech, in the United States of America for throwing up some sort of a flag that's not a white flag, that's not a red flag, that's not a pirate flag. And things have gotten a little bit crazy. I don't know how we clean stuff up. Now, that's supposed to be where like attorney-client privilege comes in. And part of why we have those privileges in the law is we want to incentivize people to get professional counsel, to clean things up, um, to get things right, and to not just um, move forward and do what you've been doing. But I think that a lot of what happened with this company is a cautionary tale for other high growth companies. And what I would encourage other high growth and potential high growth companies, and this is still America, a lot of us entrepreneurs feel like our next great idea may be the one that takes us to the moon, um, is that we find different opportunities to talk about what we're not so sure about and not be afraid of the cost of it. So um, non-disclosure agreements, you know, if you want to protect some of the proprietary stuff that you're um, figuring out, or I as an attorney like to find ways without hitting people with a cash bill to work out some sort of an equity deal or something else, to join a board, to be able to give counsel or a perspective, because a lot of these companies, it's it's just really hard for them to know when am I innovating and when am I breaking a law? And there are a lot of laws on the books. Some people say with SBF that it was really just a matter of anybody's like gut conscience, like knowing that they're doing something that is wrong, even if they don't know the name of the laws that they're breaking mm. and you know ignorance of the law is no defense but i think that it actually is defensible short of ftx for other companies to feel kind of uncertain about um when they're doing sort of what they're supposed to be doing to be competitive and different and when they are cutting corners in a way that puts their livelihood or other people's livelihoods and liberties at, at risk I think that's really, really confusing. So I don't know where the cutoff is, frankly, for when is it appropriate or inappropriate for a company to be using QuickBooks? 
And I don't think we're going to get a lot of clarity from that out of however politicians or government officials react to the FTX situation. I will say that I don't like the bill that is co-sponsored by Senator Warren of Massachusetts and Senator Marshall of Kansas, which is uh, a bipartisan know your customer KYC kind of a bill. I think a lot of those things sound good in principle, but um, I think that the effects on the innovation sector will be deleterious. So um, I don't understand everything about FTX, um, but I think I do understand the danger of everybody heaping on unlimited criticism on the company because there may be some stones that are being cast. Um, how many of our companies are solid glass or brick? Um, I don't know. So I would like to see more European style safe harbors in our innovation sectors. So that would be a way to balance regulation with allowing and encouraging sectors to grow. Yeah, so I really like the the points you're making there because I guess um, one of my major or my biggest prerogatives, and I think a lot of us should should feel similarly, is um you know innovation is one of the things that makes America great, and the fact that we are able we have the freedom to economic freedom to innovate and create new things, and frankly change the world for the better is one of the most powerful concepts and most powerful forces that we have in terms of an economy. A, nation a world and i think that's one of the things that makes america beautiful but um so i guess it's it's a strong point to to be wary of you know over regulating to a point where you can't have this flourishment of innovation um and at the same time you know i wonder how many people need to cut the corners to get to where they're they're going but it's funny because oh, they don't I, that's a, that's a really good point they don't because um what we see right now is how many traditional businesses can flourish right now. Um, I, I'm big about people rediscovering the trades. Um, when I have a, I had wood pellets delivered to my home this morning. So up in New Hampshire, we got wood stoves cheaper than oil. Hmm. So I had a ton and a half of wood pellets delivered to my house. And I had the most wonderful experience ordering those pellets from a local business and they were delivered and father and son, father and daughter business. It was like the most salt of the earth, fantastic experience where I've never been happier to write a check for $585.50. It was the best. Um, so you can, in this economy, provide goods and services, charge a robust sum and be thanked for it. So there are so many business opportunities just showing up and doing the obvious painting houses. I mean, yeah. these, these are, you can be a multimillionaire doing these. You can yeah. absolutely be a hundred thousand there on your way to a millionaire. And then you, you live within your means. You save a little bit, you invest, um, you know, you do the math. It's hard not to become a multimillionaire if you don't, um, it's hard not to be a multimillionaire if you do honor the Ten Commandments and have basic soft skills. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's that's funny you should say. I mean, I I agree that you that 
you know, cutting corners is not needed for success in business. Um, the, the funny thing that I, I guess I was hinting at was the uh, philosophical argument or philosophical undertone to 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 law or to to politics. That you know, is there a natural morality? Is there a ingrained human or morality that comes from being a social creature from becoming a human? And are laws supposed to aim at this morality? You know, politics. Yes. Right. That's the aim, right? But politics yes. and the so, legal system. Yeah, so I went to Notre Dame yeah. for law school and John Finnis was the great natural law thinker mm-hmm. uh, affiliated with our university. Yeah. So and it's interesting because I'm I'm taking epistemology or I took epistemology last semester and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, morality as, um, you know, natural or is, is there something natural to morality or is it all you know, extrapolation, you know, why do we feel that we should, should not murder? How, why do we know that it makes sense that we shouldn't murder, you know? And like, I guess, you know, it's all situational where you can murder in self-defense and you can murder in certain situations, but you can't. That's kind of funny because if you, if you, uh, you can go down some rabbit holes at night, like imagine if you're with some of your college friends and you just get really hung up on like, like, why don't I want to murder? Like, I just don't get that. I feel like I should have some impulse to murder. You know what I mean? Your friends will think you're nuts. <laughs> Completely. But it's just so if you reflect on decency too much, it uh it raises flags. Uh interesting. Yeah. It's just the the funny, it's the philosophical idea that laws are supposed to aim at morality, but like, is there actually some scientific fact of morality? And it's it's hard to say, but it's just it's something that seems so ingrained that. I should not murder. And it's funny when you say the Ten Commandments because you know there's things that they seem the Ten Commandments seem like so intuitive, but like why why do you have to be told them? You know why do you, right. I guess it's to remind us that we all share this common um you know moral code. Yeah, Saint Thomas Aquinas says that we have laws because they're for people. We're not angels. So there is so yeah. as far as he's concerned, there is a um. A sinful nature or potential for us all yeah i think there's good and evil in, in all just about you know how it's expressed now the federal reserve is all evil no I'm just <laughs> uh, i know <laughs> not all, a lot of good... pro central banking people in my web3 world yeah not quite uh, but um all good jokes can train contain some truth as j cole would say okay uh, <laughs> speaking of I want to get to the lightning round, but I first want to ask you, you know, um, what you're working on in music. You know, that's oh, a really yeah. common interest we have. Absolutely. So um, there is a NFT community um, that is currently called Webstock, W3BSTOCK. And they're doing some interesting things, organizing um, access to other folks' events and hosting their own events. They've had some really interesting perks for their NFT holders, including access to a private Method Man concert. Um, There's a forthcoming concert in New York City in um, mid-April. They've done stuff in London. Um, They provided value to me when I was in Miami during Art Basel Miami. Um, They're bringing together um, pre-Web3 musicians who are hip to reach their audience more directly. They are creating rap battles in the metaverse. 
And thanks to them, I have discovered some of the first rap that I've really liked in a really, really long time. Um, I really like a lot of the underground rap that is connecting with fans by way of Twitter spaces and selling music NFTs. Um, so Webstock, based on uh, its home in New York City, relationships with music media, and its network is creating some really fun music opportunities. And um, I see a number of ways to make that organization better. And um, I'll be joining them in a formal capacity in early 2023. Awesome. And yeah, I really, that's one of my favorite use cases for uh, NFT for Web3 in general, just I, I see so many ways of connecting with with artists and having like um, artists be more in control or and ownership. It's amazing. I, I heard it pointed out last night that it's not just that Web3 musicians are connecting with their fans, but really calling out a lot of musicians who made it more than a couple of years ago. They are not, you know, they have very um, PR person managed social media presences. Um, whereas I'll give a shout out to one of my favorite um, new rappers, Nessie the Rilla. So Nessie the Rilla, a native of Detroit, makes makes his home in Houston now. Um, a very uh, affable artist who loves his fans. And he loves his fans by um, uh, chatting with them in Twitter spaces and releasing music regularly for them. So he releases a new song like almost every Friday night and you can buy it on OpenSea. He's a- That's cool. Yeah. And um, and as a holder, it kind of become part of his click. Like people were invited to join a music video shoot that he was doing in Miami during Art Basel Miami. So people like yeah. you and me probably wouldn't have thought that we'd have our chance to <laughs> witness or be in a rap video or whatever. But, you know, there are some artists who love their fans. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the idea of, you know, you get to be early. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I knew him when he was, you know, all the way back there. It's like, oh yeah, like, it's, cool. NFT, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, FOMO, um, there should be like a different word for FOMO. That's not like a fear of missing out, but a joy in being in or something. Yeah, like, yeah. like being early just like feels really good. Um, you know, you don't want to throw too much money at something and to, you know, believe your own hype that you're investing in somebody who's the next fill in the blank. Um, I will say though, that that's a inclination that I have to fight because in the visual art space, there are a number of digital and digital artists where, I don't know, man, there might be some Picassos in the, in the mix right now. And they may be people who are DMing with their fans on Twitter. <laughs> and that's just a crazy thought, but I, it's been a very positive thing in my life. I would say that the thing that has made me feel the most alive in the past year, other than watching my children and their chosen activities like horseback riding and hockey and all that special stuff like that, that's like an amazing vicarious thrill that I have. But it's been um, getting to know artists. Um, the relationships that I've built with people way more creative than I am 
and, you know, not being too familiar and assuming that they want all my feedback or like, whatever, I understand that I'm a customer, but, you know, at some point, these artists are nice enough that you're kind of like, huh, I think we're friends. <laughs> and yeah. I, I found myself saying that like a little bit, like this past year with certain people being like, you know, it kind of started out as a fan, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think we're friends. And in, in Web3, we have a word, friends, F-R-E-N-S, where it's this idea that is the, the full word. So we'll make it a little slangy. But as an adult, there are a lot of people who are making friends and, and it's wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. I think some of my friends, my best friends don't know that I exist. Um, Lex Friedman, I think he's one of my friends, but I only listen to him. He doesn't, he doesn't listen to me, I don't think. <laughs> um, cool, oh, so yeah. you ready for the lightning round? Oh, yeah. Okay, what superpower do you want if you could choose any superpower? And I hope you're ready for this question because I'm, hope, I'm hopefully your kids have asked it before. I have a superpower. Um, my superpower is speed reading. So I can read faster than anybody who I've ever met. I self-taught from an infomercial in the 80s. Um, I didn't need to buy the course because I got enough from like the 25-minute demo. And that has helped me consume a lot of information. I know a lot of people try to consume a lot of information by playing podcasts at, at 1.5x or whatever. I don't do that. I am a visual linguistic learner. And uh, I read a lot and I read really, really fast. Well, that's one I don't have. I used to, you know, read with my, uh, read next to my mom and she'd do four pages when I do one page. And she's also a lawyer. I guess that's why I'm not going down that route. <laughs> so what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most on that note? Man, we're going to go back to some religion and philosophy. So it's uh, Confessions by St. Augustine, because the impression that that book made upon me is, you know, the saying like, well, I'm not a saint, but well, guess what? Even saints don't feel like saints. Um, and um, St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, uh, felt guilt in his life and felt um, unworthy um, of God. And yet he made fantastic contributions to Western culture and the world. And uh, that was a very special book for me to read in a guided fashion with some excellent lectures by the late Professor Charles Stinson of Dartmouth. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I feel similarly with with my professor, Ron Berger, who's known in the industry as the best reader of Plato alive, if not ever. That's what I was told I, on the first day by one of the grad students. So it just, wow. Just Did he in the that. caves? No, but I got, I got this right next to me. We read, hey! uh, <laughs> we read, um, the, uh, we read by Libus, um, one of well, Plato's harder dialogues. I, I got to prove up the fact that I'm a reader now, since you just like showed one visually. <laughs> so, um, the book that I have right here is a uh, proof of stake by Vitalik Buterin, mm. one of the co-founders of Ethereum. And I'm working on a book review for the New Hampshire bar journal, because I need to explain some crypto web three things to lawyers who might not be as hip and cool as I am. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I, you should post that on LinkedIn or send it to me because I, I definitely like that kind of stuff. I want to yeah. hear how you synthesize it, but it's going to be more than just knowledge. It'll be fun too. Awesome. But I got, I, I got symposium. I got play nice. symposium. Um, so what motivates you to continue every day? I mean, that's, I mean, kids are the easy answer. And because I, am like you somebody who strives to be intellectual and honest um 
I put out there that I wasn't sure about this kind of unconditional love for children switch that supposedly throws and you're able to lift a car if they're ever in danger. I am pleased to report that that switch uh, was thrown and, you know, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for my children. And I mean, duh, easy. Awesome. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Um, I think it's a good idea for people to reflect on their gifts and um, you can be aware of your gifts and not too prideful if you also attain the humble understanding that those gifts are meant to be shared. So being yourself is not just a thing that you do because nobody likes a phony, but being yourself and reflecting on what intentional gifts you have for the betterment of your neighbor is the best thing you can possibly do. So um, I always have to make sure that I'm not too head in the clouds, but I'm, I'm still an action-oriented person who's capable of reflective thought. So um, I would hope that people who try to be like me in some ways and hopefully avoid being like me and others um, do try. Mm -hmm. Well, beautifully stated. And uh, since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So what's one question you have for me? Uh, yeah. So um, you're in Potomac, Maryland, speaking with me today. Um, you're a senior at Tulane University in New Orleans. And it's my understanding that you are a free agent for which city or where you may be living after graduation. Um, tell me a little bit about what kind of a place would make itself worthy for Ben to take his talents. Mm, what awesome. are your criteria for where you're going to live in a few months, son? So my criteria would be, I guess, first priority is being with people in who, in real estate, who have a lot to teach, who I have a lot to learn from, who you know, I could bring my skills of, you know, finance, my social skills, my, um, I guess my, my, my network, my networking skills, somewhere I could bring um, myself and learn and grow significantly. So that's the first priority where that could happen in a lot of different places. Um, but then following that would be a place where there's a lot of other people in real estate, other, a lot of other people in multiple disciplines in which I can network with, I could talk to, I can befriend. Um, so, I mean, I guess cities of a, of a certain size and stature would. That's very probably... interesting to me because that is responsive and that does eliminate some places. So I could see somebody like you um, going somewhere to be a big fish in a little pond, but you're actually very genuine about wanting to learn and have some mentors and some collaborations with folks who are senior. And uh, that's pretty cool. Um, that's pretty interesting. So that suggests to me that, yeah, you're going to go to a place of some population. Um, I'll be really interested to see, God, what's the smallest size place that uh, could handle you? Maybe Nashville, Tennessee. That's probably about the smallest. So Nashville or bigger? Yeah, I would. that's honestly, that would be pretty spot on to what I've been thinking. Like Nashville, 
something is on my radar. Um, sounds like a cool place. A lot of real estate, a lot of growth. If I were to do a house act, FHA, fourplex, it would probably appreciate it in the next year, not next year, the next, you know, relatively uh, long hold period. So, I mean, yeah, that's the last criteria somewhere where I can do buy a fourplex um, and do an FHA loan and make some, some money in, not just make some money, but build some equity in real estate and start, start um growing my portfolio from that perspective. But um that's the last, I guess that was the, that is a big uh, priority of mine, but I guess the last on the criteria, because, you know, I think the knowledge that I gain and who I become by what I learn will be the thing that um is the most powerful going forward. That my, my true, my true path of life is the life of growth, the life of knowledge. You could say the life of philosophy, if you, if you love Plato, um, but you know, it's all about personal growth and on being on an upward trajectory. And I want to optimize for that. Fantastic. I feel better. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I feel better about the future talking with young and youngish people. So I'm feeling better about the future of humanity, Ben. Awesome. Well, I'm glad I could inspire that confidence in you. Um, hopefully that that's can be a pride. I mean, I like to be a good face of Gen Z because sometimes we get a bad name from these, from the, from the, the older older ones so i think you i think you get it you definitely get it <laughs> awesome so alex um where can people find out more about you and 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 stay connected if they if they want to um you know see what you got going on yeah if you want to hit me up on something um specific you want to link uh connect with me on linkedin i'm alex talcott jd on linkedin um please include like a note um along with why you're reaching out there uh, newconstellationcapital.com uh, is a mouthful, but that's one place to get on my investor list for real estate and private equity projects. Um, I'm my full self on Twitter at Alex Talcott, on Instagram at New C Cap is where you'll find New Constellation Capital stuff, at Lexcon Crypto is where you'll see stuff on crypto regulations. Um, you mentioned an upward trajectory. If you're into space technology and investment opportunities and education there, you can check out Terra Launch on Twitter. Uh, that's a partnership that I have. And I'm probably forgetting a few other projects. I'm up to 27 portfolio companies. And um, knock on wood, there will be more by the end of 2023. Awesome. Well, Alex is everywhere. So, you know, you know where to find him. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to following along with your projects and I hope everyone else checks them out as well. Well, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's amazing to chat again, my friend, and I appreciate it, all you've shared. Um, Alex and everyone, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.